Journeys of Faith, we're back and welcome to season three. I'm your host, Paula Ferris. We know in this election cycle, you're going to be inundated with political news, but we're doing something different. We're going to be speaking with 2020 candidates and other political figures about their personal faith and how it influences person and policy. You can call God by many different names, but we are worshiping the same God Mm -hmm. and loving the same God. She became the first Hindu member of Congress and is looking to become the first Hindu president of the United States. Our next guest is Tulsi Gabbard. The Democratic Congresswoman from Hawaii is a major in the U.S. Army. She's been deployed twice to the Middle East. Gabbard is seen by some as an iconoclast within the Democratic Party. She recently had a much-publicized beef with Hillary Clinton, and she doesn't toe the party line. On this episode, why she thinks Democratic leaders are headed in the wrong direction. We also discuss how her faith informs her policies from gun control to abortion, and we explore what it means to be Hindu. So she's a fourth-term congresswoman from Hawaii. She is a major in the U.S. Army, and she became the first Hindu member of Congress. Please welcome Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. Thank you so much, Paula. I should say aloha, which means Aloha is is the most appropriate greeting on so many levels. And at the end of this, I'll say mahalo, which is thank you. Yes. Could I just talk a little bit about aloha? Yes. As we begin here. Uh, because it's so often a word, it's a word that people use to as as a greeting of the day. You know, hello, goodbye. But the the meaning uh, behind aloha is so much deeper than that. It's a really powerful word that means when I greet you with aloha, I am coming to you with an open heart, uh, with love and with care and respect, and a recognition that we are all connected, that we're all mm. children of God, that we're all family. And therefore, inspiring um, in each of us that ability to connect, bridging the divides uh, that that we find too often Mm -hmm. in our communities, family, workplace, school, and in our country. So aloha carries a lot of weight. So don't say it unless you mean it. It really does. And you you can't say aloha without a smile. No, you really can't. (laughs) Well, aloha and mahalo for joining Journeys of Faith podcast, Congresswoman. You want to become the president of the United States. And of course, you would... Uh, make history on several levels. You'd become the first Iraq War veteran to become president, the first female, the first Hindu. Why do you want to become president? To bring these values that uh, are at the heart of every soldier and every service member, these values of service above self uh, to the White House. Really, when you look at so many of these challenges that people are really concerned about, challenges that we face in this country, um, you can, you can, follow the path towards the root cause of these problems and the lack of uh, really solutions being found to the reality that we do not have a government of, by, and for the people, that really we have a government that is of, by, and for the very few and the most rich and powerful among us, that we have too many leaders who are more interested in serving their own interests or uh, you know, serving the influence of, of the biggest corporations and the most powerful rather than really fulfilling the mission that voters entrust to them, which is to serve, you know, to put service above self, to put the well-being of the people of this country and our planet mm-hmm. uh, above all else. And it's, so, it's those values that I seek to bring to the White House so that we are truly fulfilling that vision that Abraham Lincoln laid out for us, mm-hmm. a government of, by, and for the people. And why do you think you can defeat President Trump? 
It is this unifying message that we're talking about of bringing people together all across this country, uh, bridging these divides, whether they be political, ideological, racial, ethnic, religious, uh, inspired by this love of country and this love and care for each other to bring about this kind of change. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I have done my best throughout my life to um, really live this mission of of service of, of putting service above self it's something that i i realized when i was very young that i was happiest when i was doing things for other people does that come is that just the way that you were raised is it who you are innately or does it have something to do with your hindu faith all of the above hmm. all of the above it's it's something that i experienced from a young age but it's also something that uh the practice of bhakti yoga and karma yoga uh, through my Vaishnava Hindu spiritual practice um, inspires in us. Bhakti yoga uh, basically means love for God. And this is a type of yoga. This is, there are many, many different types of yoga. I do yes. Ashtanga yoga. There you and go. And I do Bikram yoga and hot yoga. There you go. I'm not, probably not doing your version because <laughs> yours is related to your faith, to your Hindu faith, correct? Right, okay. it is, it is. So there there are uh, different, more physical practices of yoga that help uh, your physical well-being, uh, and there are spiritual practices of yoga, uh, the two of which I, I try my best to practice every day in my life, which is bhakti yoga, which means love for God, and karma yoga, which basically means taking action. Karma means action, taking action um, to do what you can to be of service to God and to be of service to others. So is this happening in a yoga classroom or is this happening no, 24-7 this throughout your day? Yeah, this is just, this okay. is, it's, uh, it's, it's a, a way of life, really. That makes sense. And it's, a, it's an inspiration. It's a motivation. For me, it's been the motivation uh, behind you know, all the major decisions mm-hmm. I've made in my life and really why I am, uh, why I've chosen this path of service uh, for my life. I want you to explain the Hindu faith. Explain to me what does it mean to be Hindu? Yeah. Well, there are many different branches of Hinduism. Like there are different branches of Christianity exactly. or Judaism and Islam. Okay. And my spiritual path is a monotheistic uh, branch of Hinduism. One God. Mono being one, theist. Many and names. God. Okay. Uh, worshiping the same God, uh, the same one God that Christians and uh, you know, Catholics and uh, Muslim, like the same God, many names. And uh, I think that's one of the things that's most misunderstood, frankly, uh, about Hinduism. And the central, um, this the heart of my spiritual practice really is about love for God. That's really what it is. And, what and for me, it's, it's less about religion and about, you know, one sect or another. Uh, growing up, you know, as kids, we heard bedtime stories from the New Testament uh, learning about mm-hmm. Jesus of Nazareth and and his teachings, as well as uh, readings from the Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita, mm-hmm. and that is your version of the scriptures, correct? It is one of it is one of the central scriptures mm-hmm. uh, that you find uh, throughout the Vedas, the Vedas that come out of of Hinduism, and okay. there are, there are many other scriptures. But the Bhagavad Gita was uh, Bhagavad Gita literally means Song of God, and it's a beautiful, timeless scripture that uh, shares universal teachings um, that are not limited to Hinduism. Uh, and these are teachings that, that I continue to be inspired by, that I continue to draw strength from uh, throughout 
times of of great joy and and really for me times of 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 the greatest hardships that I faced I faced. Mm-hmm. You were raised in a multicultural home where you would hear about Jesus from the scriptures and then you would also hear from the Bhagavad, Bhagavad Gita. Gita. Yes. Bhagavad Gita. So your father was Samoan and he was Catholic mm-hmm. and your mother's from Decatur, Indiana, mm-hmm. correct? Yeah. Are you impressed I knew how to say Decatur? I have. Most people probably say Decatur. I'm from the Midwest, so you Decatur, know. Indiana, and she, um, she... She was raised in a Presbyterian family. So she, uh, throughout her own life and her own spiritual journey, was looking for um, answers to questions that she had and was really uh, hungry for a very personal relationship with God, which was how she ultimately, uh, she, you know, she practiced meditation, practiced different forms of yoga, and... and um, found what she was looking for in those teachings from the Bhagavad Gita and other Mm -hmm. scriptures. So you're raised at this multicultural Mm -hmm. home. When do you choose Hindu over Catholicism, over everything else that you're, that you're learning in that? I think that's, that's the beautiful thing. And and the thing that I'm, I'm really grateful for is uh, it was never a question of having to choose because to me, this is not about one religion or another. Uh, I understand that, that religion really means love. For God, mm-hmm. and so you know, my dad is a lector at his church, his Catholic church in Hawaii, and um, he comes home, and and we also practice meditation together. We practice yoga meditation and and uh, kirtan, which which in Vaishnava Hinduism is uh, you know singing and and chanting and dancing uh, to different names of God, very similar to what you'd see in a in a praise and worship mm-hmm. service in a Christian church. And so, you know, some of my colleagues in Congress, uh, a friend of mine who's uh, recently left Congress, Trey Gowdy, um, from South Carolina, mm-hmm. you know, I went to a church service with him once in his state, and he was a little puzzled because, you know, I was clapping and singing and 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 really appreciating the praise and worship service as I do and love about our kirtan because really what it is is – um, letting go of all of your stresses and worries and, you know, the, the, the boulders that we carry on our shoulders sometimes, those black crows we carry mm-hmm. around with us, letting it all go and immersing yourself in God's unconditional love uh, through his many different names. And uh, so this is something that we, you know, we've done as a family growing up, we continue to do. And so it was never a choice for me between one or the other um, and uh, being inspired by the teachings of Krishna and the Bhagavad Gita, as well as the teachings of Jesus Christ. You said, because you are the first Hindu member of Congress, that you're hoping to give hope to young American Hindus who, quote, can be open about their faith and even run for office without fear of being discriminated against or attacked because of their religion. Yeah. Hindu is a, it's in the minority. You're the first Hindu member of Congress. You would be the first Hindu president. Why don't we see more Hindus in public office? That's a great question. You know, there there are a few more Hindus who've been elected to the United States Congress since I was elected first in 2012. Uh, but a lot of it goes to um, how Hindus have either been misportrayed, misunderstood, and otherized in our society. Throughout the time that I've been involved uh, with politics and, and in different campaigns, uh, we've seen how religion, especially of a minority religion, uh, is is used as a political weapon by political opponents to try to foment fear 
and suspicion in people so that they'll then vote a different way. And the the consequence of this is um, people are afraid to run for office. Mm -hmm. If they're in, they say, I don't want that. I don't want to have to go through that. I don't want that, you know, my family to have to deal with that. And and you you end up you know I, there was a little girl who I met uh, in Texas. Um, she can't have been more than twelve or thirteen years old. And after I got elected, I was there visiting with some of the the family and friends there. And she just said thank you, hmm. and she had tears in her eyes because uh, she said now I feel like I don't have to hide my religion. I don't have to hide who I am. And that's why you're doing this. And yes, and and maybe. One day I can be in the United States Congress. One day I can do whatever it is I want to do with my life without feeling like uh, there's a piece of her, very central piece of her heart that she's got to leave, leave behind. We'll be right back after the break. You um, were talking about the discrimination that you feel particularly not just from other politicians, but you do feel that from some constituents and some voters. What do you say to Democrats, Republicans, independents that look at you and they're like, she's an Iraq war vet. She is a, a badass, if I can say that on the podcast. You can say that. Um, but I'm concerned about her faith. They may be skeptical. You get that a lot. What do you say to the people? And fair or not, we know that that exists out there. Yeah. What do you say to those people? To open your hearts and and to listen, to listen. You know, bigotry of any kind has no place in our society and in our politics. And we have to, all of us, be willing to call out bigotry, whether it be based on religion or race or ethnicity or orientation, uh, when and where it happens, uh, because... You know, I, I'm going through this and, and I've been on the brunt receiving end of religious bigotry. This is something that uh, President JFK went through when he was campaigning for president and people were otherizing his Catholic faith and trying to foment suspicion and fear around his Catholic faith. Well, we've seen this happen to people of many different faiths and religions, and uh, it's it's undermines who we are as a country. It undermines the religious freedom that we celebrate here. And I think that's that's what's most important is um, that leaders in this country set that tone of respect, of aloha, mm-hmm. and of calling out that bigotry and condemning it because it cannot be allowed to be the norm. We don't take the opportunity to learn about another's culture or ideology, the traditions that are yeah. important to them based upon their religion or their faith. And I think that could break down a lot of barriers. I think there's, there's mm-hmm. such opportunity there to do just that, mm-hmm. to recognize that um, that we are that we are all God's children. We are all connected. And while you know you may worship God by a different name, or you may have a different spiritual practice or path, that that at the heart of all of this is is love. It's and, love for and God respect. and love for each other, which We're, we which can comes see differently. Respect. Exactly, we can see differently, exactly. and we can believe different things, but we can respect one another. At the end of the day, when yes, it's said and done, truly, um, you haven't always been in lockstep with the Democratic Party. There's a headline from the New York Magazine that said Tulsi Gabbard had a very strange childhood, which may help explain why she's out of place in today's Democratic Party and her long shot 2020 candidacy. Do you feel like you're out of place within the Democratic Party? Uh, no, I don't. 
because to me, the Democratic Party has has growing up in Hawaii again, when I, I chose to become a Democrat, you know, I, I wasn't one of these like, well, you know, my daddy was a Democrat and my granddaddy was a Democrat. And I chose to become a Democrat uh, when I first ran for office in Hawaii because of what uh, our party was founded on there. The Democratic Party in Hawaii was uh, really came about because of the the fight for working people. We had plantation workers and immigrants who'd come from all over the world to mm-hmm. work in those fields and terrible working conditions, terrible pay. And they were being pitted one group of immigrants against the other uh, when really what they were all looking for was just a good quality of life and a fair day's wages for a hard day's work. And I appreciated so much that that the Democratic Party in Hawaii had been that organizing mechanism to bring voice to the voiceless, to fight for the people. And that's where our party needs to get back to. But you still feel you're still at odds with them, but you're trying to coexist. So so here's here's where I think we need to go. I believe that I am in lockstep with the vast majority of Democrats in this country who really believe the Democratic Party should be this big open tent party for the people. I don't believe that that's where the leadership of our party is today. Mm. We have instead, and this has been a, a problem that's persisted over time, which is why so many people have been frustrated with the process, have stayed home during very important elections, have chosen not to be involved at all because they feel so disconnected from the quote-unquote powers that be who are making decisions for what really ultimately serves their interests rather than helping to facilitate a strong and vibrant democracy where the people's voices are heard through this process. Mm -hmm. That is the new kind of Democratic Party that I think we need a party that is not corrupted by, you know, the big money special interest in Washington or maintaining the the status quo of the powers that be there, but instead empowering the voices of the people so that we can truly, uh, again, have a government mm-hmm. that is of, by, and most importantly, for the people. It is the definition of a democracy, right? Truly. Let's talk about your policy. You've been described as an anti-interventionist, um, as a populist. Would you agree with those? Two descriptions. Yeah, I, I think I think anti-interventionist is a little bit too broad. Uh, I've been very vocal in um, calling for an end to our our foreign policy of being the world's police and uh, waging regime change wars, overthrowing authoritarian dictators in other countries. Understanding that the cost and the consequence of this foreign policy has been the terrible, terrible loss of so many of my brothers and sisters in uniform. Which you've served over 15 years with the United States Army. You're I'm still a major. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's been, uh, April was my 16-year anniversary. How many deployments? Two deployments to the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And uh, my first deployment was in Iraq in 2005. It was during the height of the war, and I was serving in a field medical unit. And uh, every single day, we we all were confronted uh, with this terribly high human cost mm-hmm. of war. And for me, just at a personal level, you know, uh, again, going going back to one of the most challenging times in my life where we're confronted with the, the reality that at any moment our time could come. Mm-hmm. And if, if we didn't realize it otherwise, there was literally a huge sign at one of the gates to our camp. Saw it almost every day. It read in big block letters, huge sign that read, is today the day is today the day and it was an ever-present reminder that 
any day could be our last. Wow. It very much reinforced, uh, first of all, it, it, it provided me the opportunity to, to find peace and shelter in the teachings that I learned from uh, these scriptures, the Bhagavad, the Bhagavad Gita, Gita yeah. as, as well as the Bible, um, about who who we really are and the eternal nature of the soul. Mm-hmm. That even as the body may be destroyed, uh, that, that we, the soul, are eternal. Mm-hmm. And to take shelter in uh, God's unconditional love and to have faith in that love really gave me that focus and mm-hmm. that strength um, and understanding to be able to not fall into mm-hmm. a dark place. So, so how does your faith influence policy, especially those hot button issues, abortion, guns, yeah. the death penalty? You are pro-choice, correct? But correct me if I'm wrong, were you anti-abortion for a while? You know, I I went through, uh, growing up, I I held views that I don't hold today. And and I think back then, uh, this was prior to my deployments, I believe that government had a role to play in being an arbiter for, you know, well, here's what I believe, and therefore this should be reflected in the government. But it was really those experiences that I've had in serving in the Middle East where I saw firsthand what happens when a government tries to be the moral arbiter for its people mm-hmm. and how destructive and harmful it is, both for women, for people who are gay, and and in the most personal parts of our lives as women about this choice. Um, Morally, so if you take, if you separate me, government. Personally, I, I personally would not choose to have an abortion. But you don't think that the government should be the arbiter. I don't believe that the government should be the one telling any woman um, that they should should make that choice. For me, I follow a plant-based diet. You know, I've been vegetarian throughout my whole life. I've moved over to a plant-based diet. That's a choice that I make both for spiritual reasons, okay. health reasons, environmental reasons. But I don't believe that government should be in a place to tell people, well, you have to do this. You're mm-hmm. only allowed to eat this. You're only allowed to do that. In the most personal parts of our life, whether it be a choice that a woman is making or who you love, no one at any level of government should be in a position to be that arbiter. I don't know what the Bhagavad Gita says. Some will say that we're, our job is to have compassion um, as American citizens on orphans and widows and the most helpless. And they say that that should extend to the abortion issue. What would you say to that? I think that this decision that uh, women have to make is very often, you know, one of the most difficult decisions they'll ever make in their lives. And it's not to be taken lightly. I, I don't agree with Hillary Clinton on a lot of things, but I, I agreed with her when she said that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. And ultimately, that decision and that choice uh, needs to be left up mm-hmm. to the woman. How do you feel about guns and, not- and gun control? Especially because of your military background, I'm interested sure, to hear. Sure, uh, this has become unfortunately such a divisive issue in our country. It has been actually for a long time, and it's been one of these issues that I feel has been so politicized, uh, fomenting fear to hype up, you know, the the quote unquote base. Mm-hmm. You know, on the one side you have people say, "Well, you know, watch out." If you pass any gun safety legislation at all, it's a slippery slope that's going to lead to them taking all your guns away. And you have some on the extreme on the other side saying, well, you know what? I don't think we should have guns in this country at all. Mm -hmm. But the vast majority of people in this country understand that 
we can uphold our Second Amendment rights while also ensuring that we have common sense gun safety laws in place to make sure that these guns aren't getting into the hands of those few who would seek to do harm to others. So tomorrow, let's say you become president of the United States. What are the first two or three pieces of legislation for you that come from you when it comes to guns and gun control in America? Having a universal background check in place that actually works. There's a number of loopholes in the system now that I think need to be closed that make it so uh, if you had universal background checks today, they wouldn't actually result in the objective that we're seeking, which is to say, you know, if you have a violent criminal record or there are some mental health concerns that need to be addressed, mm-hmm. uh, those things aren't necessarily picked up by universal background ch- uh, check system as we have it today. So actually having a universal background check system in place that actually functions as it's supposed to, I think is an important first step. Uh, doing something like this in addition to having red flag laws in place that have a due process element, uh, closing the the Charleston loophole that allowed uh, that shooter there to go and and take so many people's lives. Uh, These are some of the loopholes that we need to close. And I think this is the most important first step uh, that we can take and that the vast majority of Americans agree on. Would you support an assault weapon ban? I do support an assault weapons ban, and I think a voluntary buyback program is something that's reasonable. Voluntary. Voluntary. When you look at separation of church and state, how does that manifest itself? In respecting the freedom of everyone to worship as they choose or to not worship at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I don't believe that the personal spiritual practice of of any elected official is something that should be legislated into law because it would undermine that separation of church and state. But it doesn't mean that you impede any individual's right to also practice their faith, to practice their spiritual path. You are Hindu. You're going to be serving all types of constituents from different faith, religious backgrounds. Um, What do you say? How do you protect the rights of your constituents, regardless of their faith? Hindu, Christian, Muslim, Sikh. By setting the culture of leadership as president that respects everyone's faith and respects the decisions of those who choose to be atheists Mm -hmm. and their right to be able to practice and express their religion without imposing it on others. Mm -hmm. How do you balance the devotion to your faith and your obligation to defend the Constitution? How do you, how do those coexist? Question. Yeah, they they coexist perfectly. Uh, you know, when when you look at the the rights and freedoms that we have enshrined within our constitution, it, it, our founders very clearly stated that these rights were endowed upon us by God, and therefore cannot be taken away by any man or woman. And uh, I think that's important to recognize that. Uh, for my own personal relationship with God, this is something that that is, uh, you know, deeply personal to me and, and something that inspires me throughout my life and, and the decisions that I make and, and that love for God and therefore love for others. What better way to be pleasing to God than to take care of and work for the well-being of God's children? What if the two conflict? Your beliefs and your value system in the Constitution. For elected leaders at any level of government— It is a choice to serve, that your mission as an elected leader 
uh, must be to serve the people, whether it's the people of your local city council district or of your state house district or your state or the people of this country. My spiritual practice and the teachings that I have found in the Bhagavad Gita and in the New Testament and in other scriptures inspire this love for God and love for others and working for the well-being mm-hmm. of others. So so to me, that very much provides that platform and foundation as a public servant to fulfill that mission of service. Do you agree with many religious leaders here in the United States who say that America is a Christian nation or a Judeo-Christian nation? I don't. I don't. I, I think that that contradicts the the freedom of religion that exists within our constitution and i think it, it, it if you uh, promote that idea it leads you down a dangerous path towards some of the other uh, theocracies uh, or 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 you know theocratic dictatorships that we see in other countries like saudi arabia for example mm-hmm. do you still believe that we are one nation under god yes do you think that our currency should say in god we trust yes okay so where where does the but the line for you is we are not just one type of faith we are of many faiths we're about escaping God, religious God pers- persecution. does not belong to just one quote unquote religion mm-hmm. or another. I laugh a little bit when when people try to claim ownership. Well, mm-hmm. God is on my team, but God is not on your team, and you know I'm of this religion, and therefore you're on this other religious team and it's one pitted against the other and this is this is unfortunately what is so destructive and again what i've seen in the middle east is um this kind of sectarianism and exclusivism which means hey we're the only ones who got it right everybody else has it wrong and uh you're either on our team or you're not, it it often has led to and continues to lead to terrible wars and conflicts and persecution of, of people simply because of their religion, simply because Mm -hmm. of their spiritual practice. And uh, I think it's, it's so important uh, for us to not fall into that uh, or perpetuate Mm -hmm. that kind of exclusivism here in the United States of America. And it's something that I really appreciate about, um, the teachings of Vaishnava Hinduism, because it's not you don't it's, you don't convert into it. You don't mm-hmm. convert to become a Hindu. There's no um, like equivalency of a baptism or or anything like that. You just when you become when you become. One. It's it's more about this daily spiritual practice, really, and and how you apply these teachings in your life. And it's it doesn't contradict another religion or another religious uh, a religious teaching because again it's really centered around love for God and taking action to do all that we can to be pleasing to God and to serve others uh, and uh, to appreciate um, God's love and, and and God's names it truly is you said a daily choice but a daily physical manifestation yeah so I, I so like these. today so so, today. so I usually I start I start and end my day. Uh, with a mindfulness practice and a meditation practice, and I use these um, these beads here. They're kind of like a rosary, mm-hmm. uh, but for me, we call them japa, japa mala, or japa beads. And japa is it's a form of meditation where on every one of these beads, I'll repeat different names of God, and I'll do this, you know, by myself and and quietly and and focusing on God and God's names and God's love. 
and uh, and there are, there are other practices of doing this. Like I mentioned, kirtan. It's like a praise and worship. You get together with friends, family, whoever, and uh, have fun, sing and and dance to God's names. Mm-hmm. There's uh, so many different ways that uh, again you can call God by many different names, but we are worshiping the same God mm-hmm. and loving the same God. Regardless of how busy the day is, you begin and end your day with mindfulness and meditation. It's what keeps me grounded mm-hmm. uh, in this crazy, stressful world. <laughs> Do you even know on a day-to-day basis like what state you're in? You've been on the campaign trail. It's tough sometimes. <laughs> I'll wake up in a different hotel room and try to look out the window. and Where you am know, I? Exactly. <laughs> Do you feel comfortable talking about your faith when you're on the campaign trail, when you're stumping? Yeah, I do. I do. I, you know, quite honestly, where it gets, um, it gets a little bit uncomfortable sometimes when people are asking questions who are really not sincere and looking for what I have to say and what I have to share just about my own personal relationship with God. And instead, they're people who have an agenda or a bias. And, uh, and, and this is something that, um, has happened too often is mm-hmm. is they are trying to say, oh, well, there's something strange about her. There's something weird going on here simply because uh, I am a practicing Hindu and mm-hmm. don't fall into one of the categories that they deem uh, as, quote unquote, uh, normal. Mm-hmm. In just a simple Google search, your name will come up with Chris Butler. And I know that you've said that he is a spiritual teacher mm-hmm. and provides spiritual guidance Um He's the founder, and I don't know much about it, but the founder of the Science of Identity Foundation. Some have called it a Krishna cult. Are you concerned that any association with him becomes a distraction? Uh, No. Uh, Look, in uh, Christianity, you have pastors and, you know, Catholicism, you have priests. And and in uh, Islam, you have imams. In Hinduism, you have gurus. All are spiritual teachers. And and, um, so... Chris Butler or Siddhasrupananda is one of my spiritual teachers. He's I've, a guru. Correct. Okay. Correct. Uh, and I've been grateful to have had uh, uh, gained the insight from a number of different spiritual teachers. He has shared with me this beautiful different mantras or different names of God. And uh, I've, I've drawn inspiration from those practices, those spiritual practices and mantras that he's shared with me. Mm-hmm. For those who are criticizing you for your association with him, do you think that that's a level of spiritual, religious bigotry and religious discrimination? I mean, I, I think it is because I don't know if, if they're asking uh, any other candidate uh, exactly who their pastors have been throughout their lives and uh, or who their priests have been and trying to draw some suspicious associations or, you know, we have Muslims who are in, in Congress now, are they drawing associations with the different teachings of imams and either they've been uh, connected with or, mm-hmm. or across their religion? I think the most important thing that I hope people look at here uh, is me. I'm running for president mm-hmm. and I am grateful for the opportunity to share my own spiritual practice, my own beliefs, my own positions on issues. Uh, it is not my yoga guru who's running for president. It is not my father, not my mother, not my husband, none of these <laughs> other people. And uh, so I think that it's important for folks to um, to respect that and to at least have enough respect for me to be able to focus on what I have to say and what I'm hoping to offer to mm-hmm. the American people. Give me a word to sum up your faith and what it means to you. 
Love. And where do you think you talk about how it's carried you through the ups and downs? Where do you think you'd be today if you didn't have your faith to lean on? <sighs> That's tough to answer. You know, I, I think um, I think some of the hardest times in my life, both personally, um, as well as as a soldier, as well as some of the challenges I faced in politics, without being able to take shelter in God's unconditional love, um, I wouldn't be able to do anything that I've done or anything mm-hmm. that I've, I'm doing. I wouldn't have that that strength and that uh, wisdom and, and courage to be able to. You're tearing up a little I bit am, right now because mm-hmm. because it's real. You know, this is real, and and um, there have been challenging times, um, both for myself and my family. And uh, I don't I don't like to think of where I would be without. Um, having this this strong personal connection um, to God and understanding that no matter what happens, He loves me. Mm-hmm. No matter what. <laughs> what a beautiful description. Yeah, a beautiful description. I really appreciated your candor. Um, Thank you. The way that you've come here here and just you've been so honest and open and very transparent. Thank you, Paula. It's Cong- wonderful to talk to you, Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard, maybe POTUS. I can finally say mahalo. There you go. Mahalo. Mahalo. Thank you. (laughs) Perfect. Thanks for having me Best of luck. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Journeys of Faith. If you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast to make sure you get new episodes as soon as they're released. And let us know what you think with a rating and a review. Journeys of Faith, it's a production of ABC Audio produced by Whitney Lloyd, Lewis Millman, and Susie Liu. Thanks again for listening. I'm Paula Ferris.